You're listening to a message from Severe Heights. To learn more about us, go to www.severeheights.org. Amen. Thank you, Kari, and thank you so much for being here. I want to start today just by asking a question. Quick show of hands, be honest. How many of you watched cartoons growing up when you were a kid? Raise your hand if you watched cartoons. Oh, this is, this is great. I thought that this was going to go a lot worse than that. Um, I loved watching cartoons when I was a kid. I just loved the creativity of it, and it was kind of an escape for me on Saturday mornings. And if you watched enough cartoons growing up, then you know that you see the same sort of creative storytelling elements, the same cartoon tropes that show up over and over and over again in lots of different cartoons. And I remember there was this one I was always fascinated with. I first saw it in an episode of Looney Tunes, and it starts with our main character, in this case it's Bugs Bunny, and Bugs Bunny is faced with this this moral dilemma, this choice, this fork in the road, doesn't know which way he's going to go. And as he's trying to consider which way to go, the camera sort of zooms into Bugs Bunny's head and his shoulders, and you see a little version of Bugs Bunny dressed as an angel appear on his shoulder, right? And it's got the the harp and the halo and the wings. And this little version of Bugs Bunny is, is trying to give him moral guidance, trying to tell him what to do. And just when you think Bugs Bunny might listen to the little angel on his shoulder, what happens? Another little version of Bugs Bunny appears, this one on his other shoulder, this one dressed as a little devil. It's got the the pointy horns and the tail and the pitchfork. And you know what happens next, right? The two voices, they go back and forth with one another. They're lobbing insults at one another. They're trying to get the upper hand until finally our main character has to make a decision on which voice he's going to follow. And spoiler alert, if you've seen Looney Tunes, they never follow the good voice, right? And I was fascinated by this storytelling device as a kid. It made me curious, is this really how this works in real life? And, and I actually, I started doing some research on this whole idea of like angels and devils on our shoulders. And I thought it was something that Looney Tunes had actually invented. But it, it, in truth, it actually is something that's much, much, much older. Dating back all the way to maybe the 1300s where it first appeared in a work by Dante Alighieri called The Divine Comedy, and it's appeared in art and literature and plays for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And and whether this storytelling device is from a modern-day cartoon or from some medieval literary work of art, it seems to me that humanity has always had this fascination with voices that try to capture our attention and impact our direction. And as fun as it is to think about the little shoulder angel and the little shoulder shoulder devil, the truth is so much more complex than that. Because the reality is, for you and me, at any moment, there is an entire chorus of voices out there trying to get your attention and my attention, and they don't come dressed as little angels and little demons, and they don't announce their intentions to us outright, but they are there. And they come packaged much more subtly. They go by all sorts of different names. Many of them will come at us at once, and they can have a very real and very powerful impact in our lives. And this is really no trivial matter. Just consider for a second with me the power, the raw power behind a voice. It was a voice, after all, that set all of creation and all of existence into motion. All the way back at the very beginning of Scripture, we see it three verses in, Genesis 1, verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And it wasn't by an act of his hand, but it was the sound of his voice that brought creation and existence into being. And while no other voice can match that type of power, the Bible is quick to remind us that our voices are endowed with power as well. 
Proverbs 18.21 says it this way. The tongue has the power of life and death. James in the New Testament will devote an entire chapter of his letter about the voice and about the power of words in the tongue. Here's a selection of it from James 3, 7 and 8. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, sea creatures, are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil. It's full of deadly poison. Even Satan's best work was carried out by his voice. The Bible calls him the father of lies, and he's been doing it since the very beginning, using his voice to cast doubt. Back to the Genesis account, Genesis 3, verse 1, he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And what we see is that voices really are powerful, and there are voices everywhere. They are all around us. And make no mistake, every voice has something to say. There's no such thing as a neutral voice. Each and every one of these voices is trying to jump on the microphone of your life and my life, trying to be the loudest, trying to get the last word in. And they all speak differently. Some of them will speak to us by brute force. They will repeat their messages over and over and over again until finally we just give in and give up. Others are maybe a little bit more subtle. And they like to disguise themselves and get right up to the line of truth, but deviate it from it ever so slightly, so that by the time we realize what's happening, the damage has already been done. And still others just try to make themselves as attractive and appealing as possible. The message they have is easy, it's convenient, it tickles the ears, so why wouldn't we want to follow whatever it is they're trying to say? And chances are you know many of these voices well. You might even know some of these voices by name. Perhaps you've heard in your life from the voice of fear, who wants nothing more than to paralyze you right where you are by saying things like, don't go down that path. It's only going to lead to pain. You can't trust these people. If you try, you're going to fail. Or maybe you've heard from the voice of comparison who wants you to feel like you deserve more by saying things like, you know, if you could only get there, you'd be happy. Why, why shouldn't I have this? When's it going to be my turn? Perhaps for you it's been the voice of shame jumping on the microphone over and over and over again, saying things like, look where you come from. You're never going to be enough. If people knew the real you, they'd leave. How could you possibly live with yourself? Maybe for you, you've heard from the voice of tradition saying things like, you know what? Things are fine just the way they are. This is the way we do things after all. Don't you miss the way things used to be? Or perhaps it's the voice of culture saying things like, what are people going to think of me? Maybe this isn't a big deal after all. As long as everybody's happy, it's okay, right? And there are many voices that speak to us. That's just a few. The list could go on and on and on. But every voice has an agenda. There is no such thing as a neutral voice. Every single voice has an agenda, and it's to capture our attention and impact our direction. It's like every single voice has a megaphone pointed at us constantly, and they are trying to capture our attention so that they can impact our direction toward whatever their agenda is. And I've got bad news for us. The bad news is that we have no control over the voices that speak to us. 
They are everywhere, and they are constantly chattering. But the good news is we can control the volume. And Jesus illuminates how we do this in John chapter 10. So if you have your copy of God's word, we're going to be in John chapter 10 today for a little while. John chapter 10 is coming off the heels of John 9, in which Jesus has just healed a man who's been blind from birth. And the religious leaders, they launched this full-blown investigation to see exactly what happened and how it could possibly have taken place. And in the midst of this investigation, there is one thing that's abundantly clear. Confusion abounds. There is a simple truth in here that Jesus, the Son of God, healed a man who was blind from birth, and yet that simple truth is seemingly lost on everyone involved. And it makes sense if you consider the landscape of the time. At the time, there was a host of voices and powers and influences and laws and religious structures and governments and false teachers and false prophets all vying for the hearts and the minds of the people. And so it should not come as a shock That when something happens that was hard to explain, all of these voices come in together and try to give an explanation, and it leaves the people feeling lost and confused. And so after healing this man, Jesus speaks directly into the confusion by addressing the Pharisees head on, and he illuminates what it looks like to turn down the volume on all the other voices except for the one that matters most. And he does this As the master storyteller that he is, he does this with a simple picture. A picture of some sheep, a sheep pen, a gate, a thief, and a shepherd. And in five simple sentences, that's all it takes, five sentences, Jesus paints this picture that would absolutely revolutionize how people looked at him. And also, not just speaking into that time today, but speaking into this time right now. And so in John chapter 10, he starts by saying this, Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. But the one who enters the gate by the, the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. And so, so he begins with this picture. And for us to really understand this picture that Jesus is painting, it would be helpful for us to see a picture. And so this is a picture of what uh, a shepherd, a sheep pen would have looked like back then in ancient Israel and ancient Uh, Middle Eastern culture. And and what it would normally be is stones gathered and collected and put together in a large circle or a large square. And sometimes there'd be thorny branches or thorny vines that would kind of cover the outside of these rocks. And there'd be a single opening in the rocks. And sometimes there'd be a a permanent gate that would open and close. But many times it would just be a piece of wood or a piece of brush that the shepherd would put in front of the gate and then take away. Sometimes the shepherd himself would just lay across the opening to protect the sheep at night. And many times these corrals, these sheep pen, were used by multiple shepherds who were grazing their sheep all at the same time. And so they'd sort of collaborate and group together so that they could group their efforts to keep their sheep safe. But the goal of the sheep pen was simple. Keep the sheep in because they had a tendency to wander off and keep predators and robbers out. And so for the sheep, the confines of the sheep pen represented safety from powers and influences who were lurking just beyond the sheep pen. And Jesus choosing this imagery was, of course, very intentional. 
It's not the first time that he would compare his people to sheep and it won't be the last. And so Jesus starts on the offensive and he says, you Pharisees are one of many voices and many powers and many influences who are trying to get to my people. And he calls them thieves. He says, what you're doing is you're climbing in over the sides of the sheep pen trying to get to my people. And what he's doing is acknowledging the very real threat that the people of God face. That there are indeed voices and influences and powers that are all around us trying to get to us. But Jesus says, there's one voice that doesn't have to climb in over the wall, but can instead go through the gate. And it's the true shepherd of the sheep. And he builds on that point in verse 3 and 4 by saying this. The gatekeeper opens the gate for the shepherd and the sheep listen to his voice. And he calls his sheep by name and leads them out. And when he's brought out all of his own, he goes ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. And so back to this picture, there's a few things to remember. Remember, these sheep pens were often, oftentimes used by multiple shepherds grazing their own sheep at once. And so at night, they would all put them collectively into the sheep pen. And the sheep would become jumbled and intertwined with one another. And so it was imperative that the sheep knew the shepherd's voice so that when it came time to separate out, they would be able to do so. And so the shepherd would go to great lengths to make sure that the sheep understood his voice. They would talk to their sheep constantly. They would sing songs over their sheep. They would create these special patterns and clicks and vocalizations that the sheep would come to recognize. So when it came time to separate out from these corrals, the sheep would be able to do so accurately every time just by a sound of the shepherd's voice. And the other thing to really be aware of is the practice of how they graze sheep back then versus how we kind of do it today in our Western culture. You've probably seen videos of how we graze sheep today. Normally it involves a sheepdog like a border collie. And the farmer will kind of open the gate and let the dog just run out into this field and do this big circle and get behind the sheep. And then the dog will start to bark and bite and nip at the sheep and try to drive them in the direction that the farmer wants them to go. It's incredible to watch if you haven't seen it. But it's not at all what Jesus is talking about when he paints this picture. See, Jesus, rather than driving sheep from behind with barking and threats of violence, Jesus is talking about how Middle Eastern shepherds did it and still do it to this day, which is the shepherd goes ahead of the sheep, and he speaks to the sheep, and the sheep hear his voice, and they follow along in a tight little pack because they recognize the voice, and they trust the shepherd. And if you take all of this imagery into account when Jesus is talking, you get this beautiful picture of the type of intimate relationship that Jesus desires with his people, that there is a shepherd who knows his people. He knows them by name, and he calls them out, and the sheep hear his voice, and they listen to him, and they follow him without hesitation, and he leads them. And in the next verse, Jesus completes the picture for the Pharisees. He says, but they'll never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from the stranger because they do not recognize the stranger's voice. And in five sentences, Jesus completely unravels and demolishes everything that the Pharisees are all about. 
He says, my people are like sheep and I am their shepherd. And you're one of many voices and many influences who is trying to come over the walls and steal and destroy my sheep. But you need to know that I know my sheep by name and they know me and they will only listen to my voice and they will not listen to your voice. And I'm gonna lead them to a place of safety and security. And verse six is kind of this great irony is that as Jesus is talking about this directly to the Pharisees, scripture says, they did not understand what he was telling them. And so underneath all of this, these five sentences that Jesus speaks, underpinning all of it is this theme, this central idea underneath all of it. And it's the idea of intimacy. That just like sheep and a shepherd, our relationship with Jesus is built on intimacy. Knowing him and being known by him. And there are voices all around us that are aiming to capture our attention and impact our direction. And they are thieves and they are trying to lead us away from our shepherd. So for the follower of Jesus, it is imperative, just like sheep, that we recognize and know the voice of our shepherd. That we're able to turn down the volume on all the other voices except for the one that matters most. And that's what intimacy does. Intimacy is what turns up the voice that matters most while turning down all the other voices. And so as I think about intimacy in the context of John 10, in the context of this picture that Jesus paints, I think there are two ingredients to intimacy that influence it more than any other ingredients. And it's trust and time. Trust and time more than anything else, impact intimacy. On the issue of trust, we know it's an essential ingredient for intimacy to occur. You cannot be intimate with somebody that you do not trust. Whether it's a parent, a spouse, a son, a daughter, a relative, a friend, a coworker, there is no way to have intimacy with somebody that you do not trust. It's an essential ingredient for intimacy to occur. And the same thing is true for our relationship with Jesus. Hebrews 11.6 will say, without trust, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so for us, it looks like putting our initial trust and our faith in Jesus to begin intimacy with him. But even then, this picture that Jesus paints, intimacy is not some off and on switch that you turn on like a light bulb. Intimacy begins with trust, but it grows and it builds and it deepens with the second ingredient, and that ingredient is time. That over time, we would come to know him more. We would come to trust him more. We would be able to recognize his voice more. And I remember... Um, when we started dropping my son Nolan off, we, we take him to daycare. And I remember the first few times that we dropped him off at daycare. You know, you take him in there, and there's 11 other kids in there. It's kind of chaotic. feels like a sheep pen, kind of. And so you just throw him in there, and he, he just goes off. But, but I remember wanting him to recognize, like, hey, I'm dropping you off. And I will be back later to pick you up. I'm not abandoning you, right? And so I would always try to say something whenever I'd drop them off. Or whenever I'd pick them up, I'd try to say something. Like, you know, dropping them off, I'd be like, all right, buddy. Bye, buddy. Have a great day. And then pick them up like, hey, Nolan, how was your day? You know, I'm always trying to say something the moment I walk in the room. And I remember when we first started dropping them off, literally every other kid except for my own kid would respond to me. I'd say, I'd say, bye, buddy. And I'd have five kids saying, bye, dad. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not your dad. Uh, and my kid's over in the corner just playing by himself. 
And it wasn't that he didn't trust me, right? Because the moment that he realized I was there, the moment he made eye contact with me, he would jump up and he would run right to me because he trusted me, right? The issue was that he was not well attuned to the sound of my voice. But it's amazing what time can do for intimacy because now you fast forward a year, and I walk into that same room, that same sheet pen with 11 kids in there, and they're all chaotically running around, and I don't even have to say a word to my son. I can just say something out loud. I can be talking to his teacher, but the moment he hears a sound come out of my mouth, he instantly looks up and sees where I'm at, and he runs to me because he recognizes my voice. And those other 11 kids who would always wave at me and say, bye, Dad, none of them even acknowledge that I'm there because my voice means nothing to them. And it's silly, but it's a picture of how both trust and time play their part to develop deeper and deeper levels of intimacy. Because remember, intimacy is what turns up the voice that matters most while turning down all the other voices. And Jesus tells the Pharisees that his relationship with his people is marked by this type of intimacy. And so for us, when it comes to us developing intimacy with Jesus, what does that look like? And I want to encourage you, our pastor actually just taught a series of messages called Rose Rooms and Recliners, where he talked about three different venues of uh, places where we develop intimacy with God here and in groups and privately on the recliner. And if you have not had a chance to listen to those messages, I want to encourage you go back and listen to them. And even if you have, still go back and listen to them because there's so much truth, so much wisdom packed in there. And so I'm not going to unpack everything that he spoke about, but I am going to offer up a few thoughts when it comes to listening to God's voice. I think there are three areas that we ought to examine when it comes to listening to God's voice in our life. Number one is this, the frequency of our listening. Perhaps this might be the, only, the most obvious, but, but I think it's also maybe the most important because the more we practice listening, it stands to reason the better that we will become at it. The psalmist says this in Psalm 1, Blessed is the one who meditates on the law of God day and night. You see, we don't spend time in the recliner just to do it. We don't spend time in the recliner because that's what makes us a good person. We spend time in the recliner because we believe every single moment that we spend with our Bibles open, every single moment we spend in silent prayer, in meditation, in journaling, in private worship, in corporate worship, we believe every single one of those moments works to build deeper and deeper levels of intimacy between us and Christ. And so I'm not going to stand here and prescribe to you a hard and fast rule on the frequency of your listening, but I am going to say if you're having trouble turning down all the other voices in your life, this might be the place that you want to start because it can have a huge impact on our ability to tune out all the other voices except for the one that matters most. And so we've got the frequency of our listening, but also we've got the quality of our listening. And there's a pastor uh, named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor in Germany during the 1930s and the 1940s as Hitler was rising to power, as the Nazis took over. And in a time where seemingly everybody in that country was being influenced by the power and the voice of the Nazi party, he stood in opposition to it. And certainly a man like this 
would need to be able to be attuned to the voice of God in his life. And he wrote some things about listening. And one of the things he wrote about is this idea of half-eared listening. And I love it. He says half-eared listening is when one presumes to know what's going to be said before it's ever even said. You see, half-eared listening is when we bring our assumptions and our desires to the table rather than just bringing empty hands and an empty plate ready to receive whatever the other person is going to give us. And I think this is a pitfall of so many, myself included, because it's so easy to engage in half-eared listening where I bring my desires and my agenda and my assumptions and my worldview to a time where I should be bringing nothing but empty hands and an open plate for God to be able to speak to me. And so this is an area that all of us need to examine the quality of our listening. But beyond the frequency, beyond the quality, I think we also should examine the response of our listening. Because there is this relationship between hearing from God and being obedient to God. James says, don't just simply be a hearer of the word and deceive yourself, but also be a doer of the word as well. there's, There's this idea that one strengthens the other. Uh, My wife is a a second grade teacher, and I was trying to ask her, hey, could you help me come up with a way to sort of explain this and make this make sense? And she said, oh, yeah, sounds kind of like reading and writing. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, reading and writing, we, we teach those things at the same time. Even though arguably reading is the more foundational skill, teachers spend time teaching reading and writing at the same time. Why? Because the skill of writing strengthens the skill of reading. And then that reading strengthens the skill of writing. And it's a circle where the two complement each other and they strengthen each other. And I believe the same is true for our response to listening to God. It is one thing to hear from God. It is another thing to be obedient to him. And the more that we practice obedience, the more we are going to be able to hear from God and it strengthens one another. And so what's at stake with all of this? Why, why is this so important? Well, remember, every voice has an agenda. Whether it's the voice of fear, comparison, the past, culture, tradition, fill in the blank with whatever voice you want. Every single voice has an agenda. There is no such thing as a neutral voice. And Jesus lays out their agenda right here in John 10, 10. He says this, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. And he uses harsh words, but he uses them intentionally and purposefully. He calls out the Pharisees right here. He says, you're one of many voices that is bent on leading people away from me and down a path toward death and destruction. And you're not the only voice. There are many voices. And they all have the same goal. To capture our attention and impact our direction in such a way that we are going to take our hearts and our minds and our eyes off of our Heavenly Father and put them somewhere else, and ultimately it will lead us down a path toward destruction. He says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus offers up his voice and his life to stand at odds with every other voice. And he says this, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come so they may have life and have it to the full. And this duality of what Jesus is talking about is incredible. He's saying, I've come so that you can have life Not just in eternity, that's part of it, but also that you can have life to the full right now. 
Our pastor says all the time, following Jesus, it is the greatest way to live and it's the only way to die. And we believe it's the only way to die because only through an intimate relationship with Jesus can you and I be saved and go to heaven for all of eternity with God one day. But it's also the greatest way to live because Jesus wants to be an anchor in the midst of our chaos. And I imagine there's probably some in here today who are exhausted and worn down by the voice or the voices that just won't ever stop talking. And I wish I could tell you they were going to stop. But the truth is, they're probably never going to stop. And that is why Jesus offered his voice, his words, his leadership, his guidance, not just for eternity, but for right here and right now, that we would have a bearing and we would have a compass and we would have a waypoint that we could follow when it was hard to turn down all the other voices. And when we, like sheep, are able to tune into his voice and turn down all the rest, we can experience life and life abundantly right here. And it does not mean that it will be without hardship. It does not mean there will not be pain. It does not mean there will not be suffering. But it does mean that we will have a shepherd standing right beside us, right in front of us, leading us and guiding us every step of the way. Life and life to the full. And it is quite the claim that Jesus is making there. How could Jesus possibly back this claim up? And the next verse tells us how. He says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus is able to make that promise in verse 10 because he knows what it's going to cost him in verse 11. And it's a cost that he would pay willingly and joyfully when he would go to the cross to die for you and I so that we could have life and life abundantly here on earth and for all of eternity. And I can't help but think that maybe when Jesus said this to the Pharisees, he was thinking about what was to come on the cross. And maybe he was thinking back to some words that were written about him by the prophet Isaiah. Words that were written about him, words that were written about us, and coincidentally, words that were written about sheep. Isaiah 53 says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord laid on him, on Jesus, on our good shepherd, the iniquity of us all so that we could have life and we could have life abundantly. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. And uh, God, I thank you for your voice in this place. God, I know it's hard to turn down all the voices. They're constantly talking, constantly chattering. And God, I know that every voice has an agenda. But God, there is one voice above all voices that we are to follow, we are to trust, we are to lean into. And it is your gentle and sweet voice. And God, I'm so thankful for it. And God, I pray right now that if there are anybody in this room who does not recognize your voice, who does not have an intimate relationship with Jesus, God, I pray that you would speak to them clearly in this moment, that they would hear your voice, they would recognize it, and they would take that first step of putting trust in it so that they can begin to develop intimacy with you. But God, there are so many others in this room who we are just faced with an onslaught of voices day after day after day trying to capture our attention and impact our direction. And God, my prayer 
is that you would be the voice that rises above every other voice. That, God, we would not recognize the voice of a stranger, but we would only recognize the voice of our shepherd, of our Savior. God, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.